Um, I'm, I'm uh, honestly, I'm, I'm thankful to God for our actual neighbors who've come to faith in Jesus. Uh, the, the friends that we, we've made on Seaver Street in Stoughton. Um, my wife and I uh, never thought that someday God would allow us to become a part of a church startup. And, and some of you guys have that, have that same experience. And, and we, we, we jumped on board at different stages in the process, which is, which is still really cool. Um, how many of you guys were here? And there's not going to be very many of us because I think there were only 35 or 40 of us. How many of you guys were here at the Holiday Inn Brockton days? Raise your hand if you're Brockton. Look, look, Miss Carol. Can I? I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm going to embarrass you. I need to do this. Would you please stand? What you guys don't know is that Miss Carol came in the very first month of our church, and she said, I can't do much, but I'm going to pray every day for this church to help people find and follow Jesus. And Miss Carol is the prayer warrior of Grace Church. Thank you very much. We love you. We love you. We love you. She's been with us since the very beginning. Carlos and Michelle, my neighbors who live catty corner behind us, are back there. Carlos came on the very first weekend. It was trunk. It was it was a trick or treating, and our church was starting the very next Sunday. And uh, uh, Carlos, I had known because our sons Garrett and Jacob were on the same soccer team, and uh, we'd become kind of friends. Like we weren't like buddy buddies, but like we kept bumping into each other because of sports. And he's on the front porch. We've already passed out the door hangers that we were starting our church at Holiday Inn. And here, Carlos and his son Jacob were on the front steps and and Michelle was down at the sidewalk and I felt like God was like I've never heard the audible voice of God I just knew I needed to tell hey hey we're starting a church this weekend you want to come it's at the Holiday Inn but I didn't want to say we're starting a church because that sounds like I'm a I'm a cult leader so like I (laughs) who goes and just starts a church right Like, like hey let's just start a church okay that's where that is where cults come from so like our church, by the way, was started, we were sponsored by Cape Cod Church in East Falmouth, which was started in 1993, and they were sponsored by another church. People reproduce people and churches reproduce churches. When somebody goes out and starts a church on their own without the spiritual authority or covering of another church as a sponsor, that is where cults come from. But I didn't want to tell Carlos that I'm starting a church because I didn't want him to think I'm a religious wacko because I'm actually going to see him every day of my life. Like, I can tell a stranger, like, you could, you could, it's easier to, like, tell a stranger something, like, I have a, well, I, I don't know, maybe it is or it isn't, but, like, to talk to people that you actually know on a regular basis about spiritual things is really difficult because they know you, right? And so, like, they know if, like, you, they know you're a hypocrite. They know you struggle with stuff, too. And uh, so, so I didn't. So I like, so Carlos and Jacob, they get the candy and, and I'm like, I should invite them to church. I'm like, no, they're going to think I'm a weirdo and you should invite them to church. I'm like, no, I'm, how many of you guys have ever gotten like in an argument in your head? Anybody ever done that? So I get in an argument in my head, like you should ask him. No, I'm not going to do it. You should ask him. No, no, he's walking out. See, it's too late. It's not too late. He's still on your property, but he's walking away. It's too late. No, it's not. He's still, well, now he's on the sidewalk. So now he's not on my property anymore. Technically that's city property. Well, now he's going across the street to Glenn and Tiffany. Well, Glenn and Tiffany are coming to your church. So that would be, well, Glenn and Tiffany should invite him. And I'm the pastor of the church. And I'm thinking, if I can't ask people to show up to Grace Church, then how can I ever ask anybody else? But I can have, so I'm standing here in the window, just looking at them. <laughs> Having this internal argument in my head while they knock on their door, get the candy, then they start going down the street, and now they're at, uh, they're at what, what is now uh, Savannah Gardner's house. 
who also uh, come to faith in Jesus, been baptized here at Grace Church. And now they're walking down towards Dave and Michelle Massarelli's house, who they didn't live there at the time, but now Dave and Michelle Massarelli been come to faith in Jesus, been baptized here at Grace Church too. And so they're walking down the street, and I'm like, it's not too late. And I'm like, it is, because now I'd have to run after them. I'm going to look like, I'm definitely going to look like a spiritual wacko. It's like, if you don't do this now, I won't bless you later. Is what I, I've like, I was like, if you, you've got to get over yourself, dude, because this isn't about you and your embarrassment. This is about them getting an opportunity to know and to follow me. So I opened up the door. I ran down the steps. I ran down the street. I chased after Carlos and Michelle. And I said, hey, like this. And they turned around. Ah, ah. Uh, happy Halloween. Okay. Oh, I was like, now I have to. So I looked right out and I said, hey, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but, but Billy Jane and I are going to be starting a church this weekend. It's going to be at the Holiday Inn in Brockton, and, and I thought I'd give you an invitation if you wanted to come. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> it's kind of like when you ask a girl to dance with you in like seventh grade for the first time. You want to dance with me? Probably not, though. Okay, bye-bye. I just thought I would ask. I felt like that. It's, it's, seriously, is what I felt like. Michelle slaps Carlos on the arm and said, we were just talking this past Wednesday on how we need to get the boys into church, but and, and we need to get the boys into church somewhere, and we didn't know where to go. We'll see you this Sunday. Isn't that awesome? And, and they're still here right over there. <clears throat> but like I said a few minutes ago before the prayer time, is that God, God had way more in mind than just my actual neighbors coming to know and to follow him. God's interested in you coming to know and to follow him. Whether or not you have a personal connection to me at all, that doesn't matter because it's never been about me. It isn't about me. As long as it's about me, I mean, how many names and, how many names and stories can I keep up with? 150 people, 200 people, that's all. I remember when Grace Church was about 250 people, Billy Jane said to me, she said, you know what, think, you know what, I, you know what I, I'm not what I don't like about our church now. And I said, what? She says, I don't know everybody. And I totally knew what she meant by that because Billy Jane and I were both raised in very small churches where it felt like a family and everybody knew everybody. So I, I knew exactly what she meant. Um, and, I, and I said, Billy Jane, if it's about you and me knowing everybody, then what we're saying is basically 200 people can know and follow Jesus and everybody else can go to hell. Now that's, I don't mean that as a swear, but what we're doing is more important than me knowing everybody or everybody knowing me. It's more important than that. What's more important than that is everybody you know getting one chance to know and to follow Jesus. This church is here to give you the best chance possible to help your friends, your neighbors, and your actual family members get one chance to know and to follow Jesus before they meet God face to face. Because if they live the rest of this life disconnected from God and die, they enter eternity the exact same way, disconnected from God. And they spend eternity separated from God in hell. And that's what's at stake here. So if they, but, but the concept, the, the alternative is that they get one chance, and if they take advantage of that chance, and hopefully they get more chances than that, but they find a relationship with God through faith in his son Jesus on this side of eternity, and they follow Jesus in relationship with God, then when they die, they enter eternity the exact same way, in relationship with God, and they spend eternity in his presence. There's nothing more important in any one of our lives than that, because I promise you, two seconds after you die, you won't give a rat's butt how much money you made. You won't care. You won't care if there are any hospital wings named after you. You won't care if there's elementary schools named after you. You won't care how many likes you had on Facebook or friends you had on, on or likes on Instagram or friends. You won't care about any of that stuff. The moment, the one second after you stop breathing on this side of eternity, 
All you're going to care about is how many of your friends, family, and neighbors are going to get to spend time with you on the other side of eternity. And you will give anything in that moment to come back to this moment and do everything differently. That's what we want to talk about today. The two passages of Scripture that have shaped Grace Church more than any other. The first is in Luke chapter 15. We did a teaching series on Luke 15 that we're not going to go over right now for the sake of time. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is hanging out with people that the religious people didn't think Jesus should be hanging out with, especially if he was claiming to be on God's team. He's hanging out with what the Bible refers to in Luke chapter 15 verse 1 as notorious sinners. Now, there are other places in the, in the Bible where it says that they were sinners, but for it to say notorious sinners, I mean, like, these are, like, these are like, like, like scumbags go, well, at least I'm not like that guy, right? Like, it's that guy that Jesus was hanging out with. Like, even in, like, they say on death row, there are people who are saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as, and they've got somebody else on death row that they point to. There's always somebody lower on the ladder than us. And it was the people who were on the bottom of the ladder who didn't know anybody lower than them that often found themselves in Jesus' company. And what I think is awesome about that is that the people who were farthest from God felt most loved by him. And I don't know, and truthfully, I think that that's a wake-up call for most Christians today because I don't know that most people in our country today would say, most people who are farthest from God would say that they feel most loved by those who claim to follow Jesus. But Jesus made people who are farthest from him, from him, I don't know, I got all southern right there. Hey, howdy, him. Um, Jesus was able to make people who are farthest from him feel most loved by him. And truthfully, if you're going to live your life the way Jesus lived his life, then the people who are farthest from God need to feel most loved by you. So I think, first of all, that'd be a good little self-check right now. Do the people at your school, the people at your work, the people in your dorm room, the people in your apartment complex, do the people in your family who are farthest from God feel most loved by you? Yes or no? Because if the answer is no, then you ain't doing this Jesus thing right. So when they felt that Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with them, and that goes on to say in verse 2, he even eats with them. He was hanging out with them socially. Now, that wasn't his only crowd, of course, but he knew what he had come for. He had come to give people who were farthest from him a chance to know and to follow him. They had a misunderstanding of the character, nature, and mission of God himself. So he tells them three stories. One is about a sheep, one is about a coin, and one is about a prodigal son. The prodigal son is probably the most famous of those three stories, and you don't even have to be religious to know it. But the idea behind all three of those stories is about the lostness of the item never affected its value to the person who had lost them. So your distance from God has never affected your value to God. Some of you guys, you're disconnected from God, but only by a little bit. Some of you guys are disconnected from God, and you feel that the journey from where you are to where God is a million miles away, and you're on the borderline of giving up. And I want you to know that you're the only one who feels that way, because your distance from God has never affected your value. Read Luke chapter 15. The reason why you're distant from God, whether it's because you didn't know any better, whether because you felt like the church or somebody religious or other people pushed you away from God, or maybe you grew up in a great Christian home, but honestly, you just lost your flipping mind and rebelled against God like Captain Dan who tied himself to the top of the mast in the hurricane and Forrest Gump and flipped off God in the hurricane and said, screw you, do your, best, do your worst, right? So I don't, I don't know why it is you're distant from God, but it doesn't matter to God why you're distant from him. It only matters to him that you are still distant from him. That's all he cares about. And truthfully, if that's where you find yourself now, all God's waiting for is for you to stop running. That's it. Just stop. Turn around. That's all he's been waiting on. 
The last thing I learned from that passage of Scripture, and it shapes everything that we do, is that the, you leave the 99 sheep to go after the one. The church does not exist for itself. The church isn't for Christians. The church does not exist to provide religious goods and services for religious people. I'll say it again. The church is not for Christians. The church is Christians, and we've never been called to be here for ourselves. So if I'm going to offend anybody, if you offend a Christian, where does a Christian go if you offend them? If I offend them at Grace Church, where do they go? They go to another church. If I offend somebody who's far from God, where do they go? To hell. So I know who I'd rather offend. Do you see what I'm saying? I know who we're here for. We're here for everyone who isn't here yet. So for us, there was never a goal of we want to get to 100 people, or we want to get to 300 people. or five. Like that, that doesn't even matter because we don't, the, the, the number who are here isn't the focus. It's the number of those who are still disconnected from God that we're focused on. I'm still burdened by the fact that 90% of Stoughton is still spiritually disconnected this morning. That, that's what weighs on me. It doesn't matter to me. That we, I mean, it matters, and I'm thankful for, for, to God for everybody else who's here who's found faith in Jesus. But as you grow in your relationship with God, I know what you need to start caring most about, and that's your friends and neighbors who are still spiritually disconnected from God. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more you care about those who aren't. Does that make sense? Like, that's what Luke chapter 15 talks to me about, is the priority of those who are lost over those who have been found. That everything that we do ought to be in mind with those who are still spiritually disconnected so that they can become connected to faith in God through his son, Jesus. The second passage of scripture that shapes everything that we do is in Luke, excuse me, is in Matthew chapter 25. So I've already done a series on Luke chapter 15 that I just recapped for you briefly, is that the focus, the mission of God is to make sure that it's, it's a rescue mission from Genesis to Revelation. God is constantly at work rescuing people who are distant from him, giving them an opportunity to be made right with him, all right? Now we've sinned against a holy and righteous God, and that's created debt on our side. So when we stand before God on judgment day, he's going to ask, are you innocent or guilty, and all of us are going to say the same thing. Guilty. Like, it doesn't matter how guilty you are, you're guilty. It doesn't matter how, like, like there's no amount of goodness you can do from here until the day you die that gets you to, front, to stand in front of God and say, I'm innocent of ever breaking your laws. How many of you guys have broken one of the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. How many of you guys have been ever, who's not raising your hand because you broke number nine? That's lying. Right? So you just broke it, now your hand's up. How many of you guys have been selfish towards your neighbor? It's towards somebody else. Every one of us will stand before God now and say that we are guilty. And if God is good, he will not let guilty people go free. There's a consequence for that. But because God is love, he would let an innocent person take your place. But who here is innocent? No one. That's why I needed Jesus. Jesus shows up in human history, lives this life in a way that I could not. To give me what I could not earn. Immunity. Innocence. So I place my faith and my trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the only thing that pays off my debt. And what God does when I place my faith, trust, and hope in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he takes all of my sin off me and he places that on Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus who knew no sin became my sin for me so that I could become the righteousness of him before the Father. So what happens was is Jesus took my dirty clothes off of me and wore them himself and gave me his innocent clean robe to wear before God. That's what makes me right with God. So the good deeds that I do now, I don't do so that I will be saved or in right relationship with God. I live right or I try to live right now out of gratitude because God's already declared me right with himself through faith in Jesus. Now that I'm a follower of Jesus, how am I supposed to live my life? And that's what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 25. 
Jesus' comments are the stories that he told in Luke chapter 15. He told to a group of people, a large group of people. Some of them were his followers and some of them were not. But in Matthew chapter 25, all three of the stories that he tells in Matthew chapter 25 were just to a small group of people. Now we find out in Matthew chapter 24 that this is, the, this is the week in between Palm Sunday and Easter. It's actually Wednesday because it says that it was two days before the Passover and Jesus was crucified on the Passover, which is not a coincidence. Um, excuse me. Um, so in, in Matthew chapter 24, the Bible says it's, it's, it's two days before Passover, which was a Friday. Um, and, and so it's Wednesday night. And so they're walking out of Jerusalem. They're on their way probably to Bethany, which is where they spent the night at Lazarus's house. And if you're religious, you've probably heard of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. If you haven't, uh, just know that Jesus lived far north of that. He lived by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but whenever he would come to Jerusalem, Lazarus was like his Airbnb. You got it? So anytime Jesus came to, Laz to Jerusalem, he stayed at the Airbnb, which was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house. So that was, a, was about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. So Jesus and the disciples had been in the city all day long. And as they're leaving the city on their way to Bethany, the disciples say to Jesus, wow, look how far we've come. Look at all these beautiful buildings. Look at how much we've built up. And Jesus says to them on the way out of the city, he says, in your lifetime, not one of these stones will be standing on top of each other. They'll all, they'll all be destroyed. And that happened in A.D. 70 uh, when the, general, the Roman general Titus uh, uh, set up, uh, 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 what is it, when they, when they go around the city, they, they lock it down. Uh, what is it? Uh, a siege, thank you. They laid siege to it. So they, they blocked it all up and, and locked them in. And, and that's where you heard the story of Masada, where all the Jews died on top of that mountain. That was Herod's fortress. And so all of that did, did happen, like Jesus said. But that started a conversation about, about the end times. So when will God restore the kingdom of Israel? When will God make everything right? Uh, we know what the scripture says about how that God created mankind in perfect relationship with each other and in perfect relationship with him and how man rebelled against the authority of God in his life, and when we turned our back from all that is good, we found all that was bad, when is God going to make it all good again? And so that started a conversation about future events. And during this conversation, Jesus gives them three stories to help them wrap their mind around the ark, the story, the, the overarching story of what God is trying to do in human history. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew chapter 25. So in Matthew chapter 25, Verses 1 through 13 is the story of the, uh, of, of the uh, um, uh, excuse me, yeah, the ten bridesmaids is the ten, story of the ten bridesmaids. And, I, and I've never done a teaching on the ten bridesmaids, honestly, because I, I didn't quite understand how it fits. So Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says that essentially there's, there's a bridegroom who's, who's engaged to, the, to this bride. So the groom is engaged to the bride. There's ten bridesmaids. And uh, each of the bridesmaids are, 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 happen to be virgins, and they have oil in their lamps, and their job is to wait for the groom to come to town. And when the groom comes to town to pick up his bride, they're supposed to escort him into the feast for the, for the wedding. And, uh, but he, he, he waits a long time. And uh, so five of the virgins, the oil in their lamp runs out. They didn't bring enough, they didn't bring enough oil. And so they go to the other five uh, bridesmaids, the other five virgins who have extra oil for their lamps, and they say, can we borrow some of yours? And they said, they said, they said no, or else we'll run out. So, I mean, maybe if you hurry, you could go into town and, and buy some oil. So these other five virgins run into, the bridesmaids run into town to buy some oil. 
And while they're in town buying oil, the groom shows up and he doesn't wait on these other five. So the five that were ready and had oil in their lamp go with him to go greet, greet the, the bride. And, and uh, then they, they have the wedding and then the, the door is shut and then they have the feast. And then the other five bridesmaids get their oil and then they come and then they knock on the door to be let in. And the groom won't let them in and says, I, I never knew you. You were never, you were never a part of, of what, what, I'm, what I'm doing. And, and that's the end of the story. And then he goes into the story that we're looking at today, which is a story of a master with three servants. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. Then at the end of the story that we're looking at today, he goes into another story where he goes to the end of time where we're standing before the throne of God for judgment. And God gathers all of the nations of the world together, all people who have ever lived. And the Bible, and the story that Jesus is telling is that he, he takes the sheep and he puts them on the right hand and he takes the goats and he puts them on the left hand. And to the sheep, he says, enter into the joy of your rest to spend eternity with me because I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, God, when did we, Lord, when did we ever see you naked and feed you, naked, uh, excuse me, naked and clothed you, hungry and fed you, sick and cared for you in prison and visited you? And he said, when you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you were doing it for me. Enter into the joy of your rest. And then I will say to the goats on my left hand, uh, be separated from me into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity because I was, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and you did not care for me. And I was in prison and you did not visit me. And he said, when did we not do those things for you? And he said, when you did not do that for others, you are not doing that for me. Be separated from me into outer darkness. And they were cast out. And in between is a story. So it's like weird, right? Like I don't like, like what do these have to do with each other? So uh, it's this second story that I've always, always focused on because this second story then and is, is, is well, we'll, we'll tell you, I'm trying to decide, do I, do I tell you what the first and the third are talking about with the second one? And I, I think I, I at least need to do the first one. So the first one, Jesus is talking to just his disciples. He's not talking to everybody. And the disciples are Jewish. And so he's talking about grooms and bridesmaids and, and their bride and, and, and the oil and the lamp. Like, like that has no like significance to us because you probably did not have a first century style Jewish wedding. All right. And you probably haven't, haven't been to one of those. And like, even if you're Jewish, I don't know if, if you're still doing weddings like they did it back then. Um, but if you've seen, how many of you guys have ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Raise your hand. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Make him a catch. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I don't know how the rest of it goes, so I'm not going to sing it to you. Sorry to disappoint, right? Uh, but the, the way that it was worked is that early on in the boy and the girl's life, the families made an arrangement so that when they grew up, someday they would be married. So there was an, an agreement that was made early on that someday they would be made. And, and this is a picture. So he's talking to Jewish disciples of him, and he's talking about this arrangement. So when he's talking about a bridegroom and a bride and bridesmaids, they know that there's an earlier arrangement that's been made. And the the, the bride is the focus of the story, although she's not even mentioned. But the groom is here to marry, not the bridesmaids, but he's here to marry the bride. So the question is, who is the bride? Now, to, to find out who the bride is, you can either read the Christian New Testament or you can go back to the Hebrew Bible where you see the very first conversation that God ever has with Moses, where he, excuse me, with Abraham, where he says to Abraham, Abraham, if you will believe me, trust me, and follow me, then through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. 
God's plan all along was to call out a group of people, both of Jews and non-Jews. And the Jewish word for non-Jews is Gentiles. So if you read the word Gentile in the Bible, we're talking about non-Jews. So a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. So most of you are probably Gentiles, although there are Jews here in our church because we talk a lot about the Tanakh and the Torah. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, um, so basically what he's, what the, the story that Jesus is telling is that God made an arrangement God made an arrangement between himself as the groom and the church as his bride. And this arrangement was made a long time ago when God came to Abraham and said, you're going to follow me and through you, I'm going to build a group of people who will become my bride and I will be theirs. Your job is to make sure that you keep the light going until I get to get to my, my bride. So the Jewish people were the bridesmaids. So the arrangement that was made was between Abraham and God that all, all people someday, that I'll bring people, Jews and Gentiles, to be my bride. And your job is to keep that lamp going. And the oil in the scriptures is always referred to as God's presence. So the Jews were to keep God's presence visible and seen in the world until Jesus would show up and call the Jews and Gentiles to begin following him. And the Bible refers to that the collection of those who are followers of Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles, as the church in the New Testament and the bride of Christ is the point that he's making. And so what he says is that your job all along has been to make sure that everybody gets to see who I am so that when I show up to meet my bride, you are ready to join them for what I've been doing since it all fell apart back in the garden. That was the point. That was the story that he tells. Is that your, this is what your job is, to make sure that everybody gets the chance to see who I am and what I'm here for so that I can bring all people to myself. Then he gets to this second story. The second story starts in verse in verse uh, 14. So let me start reading it here. Verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He calls together his servants and entrusts his money to them while he was gone. And he gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last. And he divided it in proportion to their abilities. So did they get the same amount? Yes or no? What they were given, was it equal? Yes or no? But he gave to them each one according to what they were able to handle. Is that right? So he gave them exactly what they were able to handle. Keep reading. The servant who received the five bags of... Oh, he then left on his trip. Verse 16. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. This is the next story that Jesus tells. So he says, so here's what I've done. Now, now all... All three of these servants, these servants are the Jews. So it's again, it's another picture because he says again. So he starts off the story by saying again. So this story is similar to the first story about the bridesmaids. So there's a responsibility that the master has given his servants. And his servants have a job. And I've given them things. And they've got a responsibility with the things that I've been given them. And so he's talking, like I said, to his Jewish disciples. They understand this in the context of the Jews are the servants, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the servants here in this story and the master is God who's given them something. The first to immediately trust the master and begin to leverage 100% of what the master had been given them to make sure that they are on mission with the master. The third one goes and bury it. And he doesn't bury it because he's a bad person. That's not the issue. The issue was a little bit different than that. He was fearful, we find out in a minute. But simply, he was following the Talmud because there's three different Jewish writings. And I didn't understand any of this until this week. All right? This is true. I told Billy Jane about this last night. And she 
goes, when did you learn this? I was like, I, like today. I learned that today. Um, but there's three different, I, I did know this, that there's three different sets of Jewish writings. There's the, the Torah, which is, you probably heard of the Torah, whether you're religious or not. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right, so that's the Torah. Then there's the Tanakh, and that's the rest of the Jewish Bible. Christians refer to that as the Old Testament or the First Covenant. All right, so that's the Tanakh. There are some extra rabbinical writings that are referred to as the Talmud. And in the Talmud, that was starting to be written in between when the Old Testament was finished and when Jesus shows up. The rabbis started writing extra books on what it looked like to live the Tanakh, to live the Torah. So they started adding stuff. Jesus referred to this in one of his teachings as the traditions of men. And there are 10 different sections that deal with what you were supposed to do with your possessions. And one of the things that the Talmud recommends you to do if you want to keep your money safe from thieves, it says that the safest thing that you can do is that you can bury it in a hole in your, in your property. That's what you were supposed to do if you wanted to keep it safe from thieves. So what you wanted to do if you wanted to play it safe is that's what you did. Is you did. So, so this guy, so you've got three servants. They've each been given what they've been given by the master based on what he knew that they were capable of, 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 of holding. So these two guys fully leveraged and risked everything, and this guy hedged his bets. This guy was playing it safe. He wasn't really sure if what the master was asking him to do was going to work out or not, so homeboy hedged his bets, and he, he followed the rules uh, that, that he was taught. So go to the rest of the story, and here's the rest of the story. The servant, uh, verse 19. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he did trusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. So the master gave each of them what he had given them so that they could celebrate together. That was the point all along. What I gave you was to be leveraged for my kingdom purposes so that we would have more to celebrate with for all of eternity. That's the point that he's getting to. Keep reading. Um, let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver, verse 22, came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And here's an important thing to make, uh, important thing to note, is that the Jews were not allowed to take interest from other Jews. In fact, it says in the Torah that you should loan money to poor people, especially those who are Jews, and you were not allowed to charge them interest because that was taking advantage of your own people. They could make payments back to you, but you were not allowed to charge them interest. So the people that you charged interest to were people who were non-Jews, the Gentiles. So the point that needs to be made here is, is that the master expected them to use what they had with, in trading with the Gentiles. That was the point. He said, you should have at least put this out for interest. You should have at least put this out so that the Gentiles could have used this, and then you would have gained something from this. So the whole point was that they took what they had been given, and they were supposed to use this not just with their own people, but they were supposed to use this. They were supposed to spread this out among the Gentiles. But he didn't even do that. So here's what he says. 
But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested. Uh, verse 27, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from his servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver to those who use well what they are given. Even more will be given and they will have an abundance But from those who do nothing. Even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now he's had a problem with that last passage of scripture. That last verse, because that last servant spends eternity separated from God. That's because he never trusted in the master, he trusted in the rules. See, most of the religions in the world teach us, they have this in common, that a good God lets good people into a good heaven, or their version of God, their version of good, their version of heaven. But the scripture says that there's no one who does good. Even Christians' religions teach that you need to keep the rules. You need to do this, you need to do this. You need to get this done, then you need to get this done. Then you need to go to this catechism. You need to go to this ceremony. You need to get this baptism. You need to do this. And there's a bunch of rules. And if you get all of these rules, then maybe you might have a shot. And we're really being taught to live our lives like the third servant who spent eternity separated from God in hell. Hedging our bets, making sure that we get our own crap taken care of, not really trusting the master, not being fully leveraged, it's just making sure my butt's covered is the way that we live our lives. And as long as your faith, hope, trust, and confidence is in your ability to keep the rules, your faith and trust, hope, and confidence is not in Jesus. The other thing in this story is that those first two guys were fully leveraged they risked 100% of everything they'd been given for the master, and he called them faithful. But the one guy who lived his life in fear of losing what he had was the one guy who spent eternity separated from God. Man, this echoes what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 25. In that passage of Scripture, Jesus said, For those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who are willing to lose their life for my sake and the gospel's We'll find it. So that first passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 15 shapes everything that we do here at Grace Church because we know that everything that we do is for those who are not a part of Grace Church yet. That's why we, that's why we do the trunk or treats. That's why we do the, the Thanksgiving bag, meal bags with, a, with a gift cards for the turkeys. Um, that's why we do the movie nights. That's, that's why we give away grocery cards at the end of every service. To people who aren't even here, we say that if you know somebody in need, give them one, come get one of these grocery cards and give it to them. So we, we know who we're here for. But I also know what I'm supposed to do with all the stuff that I've been given. Because like a servant of God, like, like those in the story, 100% of what I've been given to me has been given to me by God. And anything else that I have in my life that wasn't given to me by God, I only earned by leveraging something that God gave me. So you might think you're a self-made man because you're the one who got your own education. You're the one who started your business. But you got your education with the intellect you were born with. You didn't earn that intellect. You didn't earn your IQ. You didn't earn your personality. You didn't even earn the fact that you weren't born with some crippling disease. Everything about you is borrowed from God, and everything you have now is only because you've leveraged what God gave you. Truthfully, everything you have came from God, and God gave you exactly what he knows you're fully capable of handling. He didn't give you a, a, a little bit more than what you can handle or a little bit less than what you can handle. All the resources you have right now at your disposal is exactly what God intends you to have, and how much of it does he intend to be leveraged for his kingdom purposes? How much of it? 100% of it, 100% of it. We live our lives fully leveraged for the glory of God. But how many of us are still hedging our bets? How many of us in our lives, we've given this much of ourselves to God, but we haven't given our paycheck to God. We haven't given our bank account to God. We haven't given our sexuality to God. We haven't given our dating life to God. We haven't given our marriage to God. 
You'll give God this area, this area, this area, but truthfully, we're a lot more like that third servant than we want to admit because we're still playing it safe because we're truly, truly, we're afraid to trust God. But if he says those who are mine who are wholly devoted to me, those are the ones who will enter eternity, but those who play it safe, those who hedge their bets are not, bro, there's a lot of us in here who ought to be nervous. There are two types of people in this room right now. Those who have wholly sold out to God, lock, stock, and barrel. There's nothing God could ever ask of you that you wouldn't give, nothing that he would, no place he would ask you to go that you wouldn't go to. He can't ask you to go too far. He can't ask you to give too much. You're there. You are all in. And then there are those who don't trust God, so they're playing it safe. Those are the only two kinds of people in this room. You get to decide which person you are. Are you fully leveraged for the glory? Listen, we got a crap ton more work to do. And if we've gotten this far, truly, truly, 30% of the attendance of this church carries the weight of this church. The other 70% are getting a free ride. They don't volunteer. They don't serve. They don't give. They're not engaged. 30% are carrying the bulk. Can you imagine? Hold on. Can you imagine what God would do with Grace Church if the other 70% jumped on board? We've started four other churches in our last nine years, we've started four other churches. We're starting two churches in 2018. One, we're, one's a replant in Braintree. The other one's in, in Bridgewater. What, how many? It is our plan, Lord willing, truthfully. The vision that God has given us is that nobody lives more than five or ten minutes away from a gospel preaching church. The thing is, though, that you as the congregation, you get to determine the speed at which this happens. Now, this can either take us 20 years to happen or it can take us 10. And the only difference is the number of you who are willing to get engaged with the mission of God. That's it. That's the only thing holding us back. That's it. This is the time in our church's history where we double down, where we double down, where we start more churches, where we look for more churches who are struggling that need to be helped out. We, we, we recruit more church planters, where we raise up more church planters, where we find other churches that have everything going for them, they just need more resources, and we heavily invest in them like other churches heavily invested in us, where we take pockets of you guys who are coming from more than two or three towns away, and you guys spin off and start your own church or go join another healthy, life-giving, Jesus-focused church over there, because we're not trying to put more butts in seats, we're trying to get more people connected to faith in Jesus, and we will do anything short of sin to make sure that that happens, but we need 100% of everybody in involved to make it happen. Does this make sense? I want you to decide where you are and where you need to be, and that's how we're going to close out today's teaching. So if you would bow your head with me. God, I'm thankful for your love, and I'm thankful that you don't give up on us. God, sometimes you drag us kicking and screaming just like spoiled, rotten, bratty kids, and I know that I've been a bratty kid of yours too. God, I've got to assume that in a room with this many people, there are those who are still spiritually disconnected or they're trying to be good enough to make it, but they, they recognize from what we talked about in the scriptures today that no matter how good they are from this day into the end, to their last day, they'll never be able to stand before you and say that they're innocent. We're all guilty. And as long as we're trusting in our baptism or our communion, or, and God, these are things that we do here at Grace Church. We have baptism here. We have communion here. We, we do good deeds here. But as long as we're trusting in those things to save us from our sin, then we're not trusting in you. We're trusting in our ability to perform. Our trust, our faith, our hope is misplaced. If that's where you're at, if you're trying to be good enough to get to heaven and you recognize I'm never going to be innocent, if you believe that Jesus is innocent, 
that he did die on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead as a payment for your sin. Would you tell him that you believe that? God, I know why you died on the cross. I know why you were buried and I know why you rose from the dead with new life. It is to give me a new life and that's what I want. So I am simply by faith asking you to take away all my sin. Forgive me for all of it. Give me a clean slate. Wipe my heart clean. God, please. I would never ask you, Jesus, to die for me, but since you volunteered, I'd be crazy to walk away from it. I need to be forgiven for my sin. Save me from my sin, and I'm giving myself 100% to you. On the day that I gave myself 100% to Billy Jane on our wedding day, I said I do. I was 100% married, but I wasn't a good husband yet. That was a process, so you're committed to the process. God, I'm not even sure what that's going to look like yet, but I'm 100% committed to the process. Help me follow you with the rest of my life. If you are a devoted follower of Jesus, but you recognize there are areas in your life where you are hedging your bets, there are parts of your life that you have restricted God from having access to or control over. Would you admit to God that you know that that is sin? God, I'm sorry that I don't trust you with my sexuality. I'm sorry I don't trust you with my future. I'm sorry I haven't trusted you with my past. That's why I won't forgive those people. God, I'm sorry that I don't trust you with my money. God, I'm sorry I don't trust you with my time. I don't trust you with my marriage. Like, what's your area of brokenness? Where's the area of your life that you're hedging your bets? God, I'm all in again. Forgive me for holding back on you. Help me to live fully leveraged for your kingdom purposes in this world. Thank you for not giving up on me and for including me in your plan for what you want to do in the lives of other people. And finish this prayer by praying for God to bless somebody else in your life through you. I'll give you a second. Think of somebody that you're not friends with, somebody who would be surprised to be blessed by you. Pray for that person. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you, use you. Pray for the courage to do something generous for them. God, change me so that you can change others through me. God, that's our prayer. It's the prayer that we make in your great name, Jesus. Thanking you for all that you've done, but looking forward to all the stuff you still plan to do. In Jesus' name, we all pray and say, amen.